The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Hey friends, and welcome to the program today, Afternoons with Mike, right here on the Shepherd Radio Network. On the phone today with somebody that is from Washington, D.C. She has not escaped that from uh, her time of uh, being an appointee under President Trump for health care. And I'm talking about Katie Talento, who is the executive director. And I'm looking here. I'll suddenly I just moved and there it there it is. I'm gonna I'm gonna pause that and just say Executive Director of the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries. Welcome, Katie. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Mike. It's an honor to be here. Well, this is always a privilege to get to talk to somebody that does what you do, that is looking for those ways that Americans can make it through right now. The healthcare industry in general has gone through a, a major metamorphosis over the past decade or so. I mean, we, we think all we have to say is Obamacare, and that that's enough to say, okay, yeah, there's been a few changes. I, I think our first child, Katie, uh, I think Cindy and I paid the hosp- I paid our insurance company back five dollars for our first child back in 1977. Wow. We've come a long way since then, haven't we? Oh boy, yeah. I mean, it's much closer to five thousand now out of pocket. <laughs> I tell My you, it, it's true. So tell us a little bit about you first of all, and then we'll we'll dive into what you do for the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries. Sure. Well, I'm an epidemiologist by training, which most people couldn't pronounce before, you know, COVID, but now epidemiologists are finally getting the respect they deserve. Um, So, yeah, I I came out of graduate school and did a bunch of health policy work on Capitol Hill for the United States Senate. And, um, And it was from there that I found myself working for the campaign of uh, then candidate Donald Trump. And um, so, you know, that that led to the White House job. And and since the administration, I've been working with the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries and helping them to um, educate other policymakers and legislators about religious liberty and how healthcare sharing ministries provide an, an alternative to health insurance that's a little bit more human we like to say we 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 we're making healthcare human again mhm it feels sometimes inhuman doesn't it it sure does it's such a bureaucracy it's it's everyone's worst nightmare is dealing with the healthcare industry and, and you know when it comes to that it makes me think of the old saying it might get a whole lot worse before it gets better and i i'm hoping that that's not the case but uh, the way things are trending with costs right now it's very concerning and then we're looking at massive what could be massive food shortages later this year and already the skyrocketing inflation hits that's uh, it's just a difficult time especially if you've got major health issues and major health bills these are tough times so we need to save every bit of money that we can right that's right i mean nearly one in five americans are unable to pay for necessary medical care and more people than ever are declaring bankruptcy because of medical debt. It's just, it's crazy. 
Um, so it's really important to find those um, cash pay options and more affordable options like healthcare sharing ministries, but also taking advantage of some new regulations and rules that are in place that are pro-consumer, frankly, and, and designed to help people save money and find lower cost care. Now, up until a couple of years ago, I think most people would have not understood exactly what you meant when you say sharing ministries, healthcare sharing ministries. A number of years ago, we started hearing commercials from companies like MediShare and uh, Samaritan Ministries. Uh, are these two that you work with? They are, absolutely. MediShare and Samaritan are both members of the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries, which is the uh, nonprofit organization that I run. And, you know, they are some of the biggest and most respected players in the community of healthcare sharing ministries. They do a great job. Yeah, they're really, you know, healthcare sharing ministries are a bit of a foreign concept to a lot of people. Um but really, it's just a, a community, you, at this point, a nationwide community and sometimes international community of religious believers that come together to share in their medical bills. So they, they go get care and then they, they upload their medical bills to the ministry's portal and other members are assigned to help share in their bills. And it's really, it's kind of like a doing a homeschool co-op for healthcare. You know, it's, um, we in the Christian community, we're used to relying on each other. I think that a lot of times legislators or other policymakers, they don't understand this model very well. They're so used to this kind of cold, contractual, um, bureaucratic insurance model. And they think that, you know, it's all very risky to put your hands in, in the, you know, I'm sorry, to put your life in the hands of, you mm -hmm. know, your Christian brothers and sisters. Um, but Christians don't think that's risky. <laughs> we think it's risky not to. So, um, so it's, it's, I think it's a, a, it's a solution for healthcare that's more in line with our, our budget, but also our beliefs. Yeah, it is. And, you know, my, my wife was part of one. Uh, she has uh, had for four years uh, a Samaritan membership. And the whole concept, uh, now I know that there are some differences among even the uh, stated healthcare ministries that are out there. Some are more like insurance companies than others, uh, but what they all do share is this thing that you talk about where believers are helping make up that difference uh, of what healthcare costs are. So rather than pay a company a premium, they're actually paying that premium, if you will, to another member, correct? Right. Most of your uh, monthly contributions are going straight to another member, another family that has incurred medical bills. And lots of times they'll tell you who it's going to. Um, and depending on the ministry, like Samaritan that you mentioned, they have you write the check or transfer your PayPal um, straight to that family. So you know who's who's being helped. It's really beautiful. And lots of times you'll send, uh, you'll you'll get in the mail little notes and prayers and, you know, it's very sweet. It's, it's, it's just a better way to do things. Well, it is a great option for people too that uh, are in need and they don't have typical health insurance because one thing that has happened, there's been a great uh, change in the way businesses provide for their employees health insurance. Now there's, it's still there. I know it's still there and there are plans, what used to be called group plans that seem to be affordable, 
uh, maybe more so than what one could get on the open market. But as it as it uh, seems to be going, uh, this whole thing of for believers especially, this whole thing of sharing has become a big option, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you talk about employers, Mike. The the most recent Kaiser Health um, Kaiser Family Foundation estimate of what a family affords premium cost for an insurance policy is $22,000 a year. That's oh. what the employer and the employer are paying together. Um, now, how much each employee has to pay, what what percent of that 22,000 they have to pay? Well, you know, for a family of four, it can, it's in the thousands and thousands, right? And, th- and then that's before you use it. Once you use it, you have a deductible and an out-of-pocket max and co-insurance and co-pays. So, you know, it is it is not affordable out there. I mean, that's just it's it's one of voters' number one priorities and and pain points. And it's I think it's every American's pain point these days. I think it is too, and it is something that we all have to become familiar with and deal with because it doesn't look like this problem is going to go away anytime soon. Now, tell me a little bit about your your background. What drove you to begin to study? this whole thing of uh, becoming an epidemiologist. What's what's the background beyond that? Yeah, so I, I loved statistics and um, designing methodological studies. I really liked that, but I loved the subject matter of medicine. So I, I didn't I didn't like the methods of medicine, which are pipettes and labs and um, you know, just dealing with one person at a time. I, I loved the idea of public health, which deals with, populations, right? And and um, using statistics to figure out what's true in about epidemics and, and disease patterns and populations. So I just thought that was really cool. You know, I, I kind of wanted my life to be like that movie on Outbreak where I, I wore spacesuits in quarantine towns and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that. That was uh, that was scary, actually, uh, from uh, now in this day and age after COVID exactly. uh, uh, for a right. whole new reason. It was uh, yeah. Rather... We thought that was some dystopian nightmare. Which yes, became our reality, right? I mean, yeah. Goodness, it, it certainly is now. So, so that everyone is clear, you're not actually doing lab work as an epidemiologist, but you deal more, like you said, with the statistics and the demographics uh, involved in healthcare and studying trends and things like that, right? Right. Epidemiology, the, the tools of an epidemiologist are statistics. So you, you design, you know, studies carefully to answer certain questions, and then you carry out data collection um, with questionnaires or demographic info or healthcare records. And, and then you, um, and then you figure out truth based on the patterns that you see in those statistics. But as we know, you have to be very careful with statistics. You could they can be tortured into telling you anything. Yeah, they can be made to say what you want them to say if you have a mind for that. Now, there's something I have to ask before going back down into the pure questions about uh, your organization and and all that Sharing Ministries do. I have to say that you joined what would have to be a very elite club of people who have been appointed in their lifetime by a president to serve in the White House as, to, as a policy advisor, what was that like? <laughs> well, it's certainly uh, stressful. It was fun. It was funny. Um, I mean, every adjective in the world to its extreme. But um, it was it was certainly a sacrifice for my husband and my kids. And I think they viewed it like a military deployment. You know, mom will be back in a few years. 
Um, but Listen, the president, President Trump was super fun to work for. And even though, you know, he and we were attacked every day by many, many in the media and others, but um, it was fun. And it was such an honor. You know, when you work in government policy, that's sort of the the Super Bowl of government policy. Mm -hmm. And so it was really a dream come true to be able to have that kind of an impact and to work at that level. Um, it was really, really humbling and fun. What was it like when you realized that not only are you working for the president in public policy and you're serving the entire nation with that, but then this thing called COVID breaks out? What was that like? Well, thankfully, Mike, I actually had left the White House before, right before COVID came ah. to our shores. Um, I'm actually quite grateful for that because I do know that it was such a difficult time. Um, oh my and, goodness. and just pressure cooker for all my former colleagues that they were under. So um, I am grateful that I, I didn't have to go through it. But um, I think it's, it's rare when people stay in the White House for four, all four years. It's such a strain on the family. Um, and so most, most people don't make it through. And I, including me, I was there for about uh, almost three years. Wow. Well, thank you for your service to our country. And I'm really glad that you escaped having to be on there with uh, with Dr. Fauci and the rest, <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the people that became almost nightly uh, icons on the on the news. Uh, that was uh, for most people. We kind of start shaking when we look at that or think about that. Uh, I'm grateful that we have come to the point where we are now with this whole disease and praying that it, uh, the, this whole thing with monkeypox now is not going to uh, become an issue or be made to be an issue. But, uh, boy, thank you again for your service on that. I know that hospitals, uh, they too were impacted through uh, the recent changes, especially hospitals, doctor's offices, obviously. Insurance companies took a major hit because it seemed that when Obamacare came out, it just changed the whole landscape of how health is either managed or how it's paid for and how it's organized in the health clinics and all of that. How are hospitals doing now with accepting all of this whole thing with sharing ministries? Oh, well, you raise a lot of good points there. Um, I will say that insurers and hospitals have done nothing but better over the past 10 years, including during covid um, they're all doing quite well, and insurers, in fact, did particularly well as everyone was paying them premiums but not actually seeking care during COVID. Um, but even with the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, these the healthcare industry, the Affordable Care Act was really designed to help the healthcare industry, and um, rather than than <laughs> than maybe who it was designed to help. And it but doesn't it, it seem really that it was designed to be affordable. <laughs> It's neither affordable nor caring, but I will say um, it. There have been some positive outcomes of the Affordable Care Act. There are people who have coverage now that wouldn't have had coverage for healthcare, and that's always positive. Um, and there are, you know, one of the best things about the Affordable Care Act, from my perspective, is the definition of healthcare sharing ministries that was added to the Affordable Care Act. Um, there had never been a federal definition of healthcare sharing ministries and they defined us so that they could exempt us from exempt members of healthcare sharing ministries from the um from obamacare's individual mandate and so we actually rely on that provision 
of the ACA every year at tax time when you're asked that question, if you have insurance, um, even though there's no penalty anymore, it's still a mandate out there. And it's really important piece of that law that, that they exempted um, our members from that requirement. So the healthcare industry is doing well as always. Um, um, you know, increasingly you have giant corporate hospital systems that are either for profit and, um, you know, acting like it, or you have most of the time, the majority of giant corporate hospital systems are so-called nonprofit, tax exempt, in fact, um, riding off the uh, taxpayers because they supposedly provide charity to their communities. And what we see is quite the opposite, um, unfortunately, is um, increasingly these hospital systems are, you know, eating up every healthcare entity in their wake. They're sort of merging, they're on massive acquisitions um, projects where they, they eat up all their comp competitors in a community, they eat up all the primary care doctors and uh, independent physician practices, but also all their competitor hospitals, community hospitals, small hospitals, rehabilitation hospitals, so that, you know, once that happens, we see prices go up in those communities, of course, as you would expect in a monopoly situation. Mm -hmm. So I think people are really struggling with the price of healthcare. Um, but also perhaps the, the biggest reason why those prices can go up and up and up is because they're secret, or at least they have been until recently. Um, and that's, and that's a big change. It, it's a huge change. And, you know, America can thank President Trump for that. Um, he put out a regulation and uh, requiring hospitals to show their secret prices that they negotiate with insurers, but also to show their cash pay prices for people who don't have insurance, like members of healthcare sharing ministries. And so it's a little bit hard to find that information, although the law says it's supposed to be easy, but they kind of hide it on their website, but you can find it. And we're hoping that it will start to create a groundswell of, you know, new apps out there that create like the Expedia of healthcare, right? Or um, the Amazon marketplace of healthcare, where you can shop for different services mm -hmm. and know what the price is going to be in advance. We think that not only will that help, you know, consumers know the price in advance, but, you know, that doesn't really help you if the price is so high you can't afford it. True words from my guest today, Katie Tolinto. We'll be back with Katie in just a moment. This is Afternoons with Mike, and you're on The Shepherd. Talking yet for a bit of this segment with Katie Talento from the Alliance for Healthcare Sharing Ministries. And we were talking about the importance of knowing what prices are, especially with hospitals. Katie, why is that important? The way it really helps lower costs is through the competition. You know, once employers and patients know how much prices are, well, then you're gonna have competition the way we do in every other industry and it'll lo eventually lower prices. And it will also enable innovative um, financing mechanisms like cash pay bundled rates at surgery centers and um, you know, it, it direct primary care, which is subscription-based primary care. So these newer innovative um, financing schemes that actually are really pro-consumer and super transparent about how they work. I think that's the future. And price transparency rules implemented by President Trump, but frankly, doubled down on by President Biden, thankfully. Um, now that I would be a first, right? Really that's help. that's right. not happened in too many areas, right? 
I know. Well, price transparency is probably the, the least partisan issue I've ever worked on. When we pulled it, it after the fact, we, you know, it was it, something like 85% of Americans support, you know, ending secret prices in healthcare. And that's in, in our town, that's what we call a consensus. So um, it's really, really nonpartisan at this point. Mm-hmm. Wow. I know that hospitals that uh, are are doing this uh, price publishing right now are are obviously in compliance. Are there hospitals? Do you see any hospitals right now across the country that are not yet up to game on this? <laughs> yeah, that would be the majority of them. <laughs> oh, so, really? Oh, bless their hearts. Yes. In the first year of um, the regulations going live, there were only 5% of all hospitals were, were complying. Wow. And um, I think they were, that was during 2020. And I think they were waiting to see what the new administration would do and if they might be able to lobby their way out of these requirements because they were just regulations put out. They weren't a law yet. Um, and so they could be undone by a new administrative state. Well, Thankfully, I mean, I was waiting with bated breath. I was very nervous that um, Team Biden was going to undo these regs and would would fall prey to the intense pressure of the sort of healthcare swamp, all the lobbyists um, that that hated these these regs. And also, they sued the hospital sued um, to to stop these regulations from going into place. They were laughed out of court at the federal district level, and then at the circuit court of appeals, they were laughed out of court. They lost. Um, but they were hoping, I think, that to get out of this. But what happened is um, the the Biden White House issued an executive order that, um, that basically said, no, we're going to double down on these rules. And in fact, we're going to toughen up the penalties for noncompliance. And although they haven't actually done that yet, they haven't actually imposed any penalties. I think the mere messaging, you know, basically told the hospital universe that you're not getting out of this. So go ahead and embed compliance. Um, but that first year was bad. Compliance was really bad. It's, we're now in the second year, and um, it's about 13 or 14 percent com- full compliance. Most hospitals are complying in part. They have some of their sort of spreadsheets that they're supposed to make available on websites. Um, they have some of that available. Some of them have an interactive cost estimator tool that you can go in, but you have to put in all your insurance info in order to get a price estimate. Um, and they're not binding price estimates. They're mm. just sort of guesses. And so uh, full compliance is, is still in the future for us. But I think it's really important to keep talking about the rules and the requirements. And um, hopefully there will be actions taken against non-compliant hospitals. Another element of this that's, that's piling on is that Congress did, in fact, act. Um, and they did sort of codify a little bit of these rules in law. So again, they're, they're, it's not totally going away. And states more and more um, are starting to pass their own price transparency rules. Here where I live in Virginia, uh, we passed our legislature, a bipartisan legislature, Democrats and Republicans own each of the two chambers. Um, they passed a, a bill that would require forced compliance with these rules on hospitals. Colorado just passed a bill that allows patients um, to sue for being billed if they weren't given price transparent information before their service by the hospital. So these are good developments and we can only hope for improvements. When you see a state like Colorado do that, 
And so often it seems in this day that a lot of uh, other states will see a precedent happen from, let's say, a governor in Colorado and a legislature in Colorado passing something. It has like a trickle-down effect on some other states. Do you see that as a possibility with this? Yes, absolutely. You know, these um, these policymakers, they get together at conferences every year. There, there are conferences where legislators get together. Um, even legislators who work in healthcare, they all get together um, across different states and they share ideas and they share legislation that they've passed or heard about. So word does tend to spread. Wow. That's really uh, an amazing thing when we think about how that we're living in a day and age right now where these things are set and we all know expenses are high, but such a, a low percentage of hospitals are actually abiding by the the rules or the laws that are on the books already. And how do you see that? Do you think it's going to be hospital to hospital pressure that will change that? Or is it going to be legislature pressure? What will actually bring hope to bring that percentage way back in line where it needs to be? Well, even now, most hospitals are complying in part, right? So, you know, if I had to guess, I would I would say that probably 75% of hospitals are complying in a, at least enough to provide some meaningful information to consumers. Mm. So I don't think it's, it's all gloom and doom out there. Um, you know, I, I constantly scour websites of hospitals looking to see if they're complying. And, you know, I find that I can usually find a spreadsheet that has a number of, of their charges on it. Sometimes it's not complete. It's not always um, formatted exactly how it should be, but it's better than nothing. And the great thing about that is, you know, if it's it's in a messy spreadsheet form, format that a consumer can't really use, you know, exactly. It, I'm starting to see a number of startups out there that are, you, you know, developing a business model around scraping up that data from all the hospitals in America and creating platforms that will, um, right now, they tend to market themselves to self-funded employers. Um, that's the larger employers that pay their own health claims. Um, but they're also marketing that information to healthcare sharing ministries to make available to mm -hmm. their members to help them identify lower cost sites of care. So this is starting to happen. I think you know we will end up with the Amazon of healthcare. We will. Um, it, it, I, would, I would say in just a few years. Do you think that there will be other uh, companies like MediShare or Samaritan, uh, these different types of companies? Are you s anticipating more startups as time goes on? Yeah, we have seen a number of new healthcare sharing organizations entering um, this space. There are even a few new healthcare sharing ministries. You know, not all healthcare sharing organizations are ministries that are that are based in you know spreading the gospel and doing healthcare the way Jesus would do it um but some of them are just sort of in it in it for the kind of the innovative disruptive business model kind of and and some of them are for profit in in fact but um but healthcare sharing ministries are a unique kind of category of nonprofit ministry based um require the members are required to be um, to share their set of beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so you see a, a little bit of growth in, in all those categories. Um, but, you know, one thing that the ACA did is it sort of reserved its, 
exemption, sort of its benefit of that exemption to healthcare sharing ministries that have been operating for over 20 years. So um, they kind of grandfathered in the ministries that existed then. And if you're in a different ministry that started after that, it's harder to get that exemption. And so that's a little bit of a, a barrier to entry for, mm. um, for this type of organization. And, you know, I, I, I think it, it's caused a little, it's, it's made it a little bit harder to come online. Frankly, we, you know, the healthcare sharing ministries want to be careful about the proliferation of the model among for-profit entities that might be more confusing to consumers that might, they might feel more like insurance when you're dealing with a for-profit actor that doesn't have a basis in their Christian faith. Um, it's easier to look like just unlicensed insurance. You know, mm -hmm. we don't want that. That's not what we are. And that's not what the model is. And so it's important for us to keep these kind of bright lines between categories. Having said that, that uh, this is those that are not grandfathered in, are there companies that actually did get that exemption that were not grandfathered in? No. I mean, if, if you, if you weren't grandfathered in, you don't get the, you don't get the exemption. Okay. Um, there are some organizations or some ministries that partnered with an older ministry um, in order, you know, to to grow that smaller ministry's membership. They, you know, you have older ministries that got the exemption, but mm. they wanted to grow and get a more nationwide footprint. And so they would partner with a newer organization. And so there's a little bit of that going on. But um, for the most part, really, the 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 largest, biggest healthcare sharing ministries that you're familiar with or that you've heard of have been around for decades. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the selling points really is that, you know, when you're talking about putting your trust in, in a group of believers hands, um, you want it to be a longstanding reputable organization that has a solid history of, you know, sharing in medical bills for its members and reliably serving them. So it's we kind of we kind of think of our longstanding history as as a selling point as to why we're reliable and trustworthy. I really appreciate your being with me here today, Katie Tolento. Uh, give us your contact information, how people can get in touch with you. Absolutely, you can reach us at our website called www.ahcsm.org. That's Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries.org. Ahcsm.org. Katie is the executive director of that and uh, again talking to us from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for what you've done. Thank you for our service to our country and to all believers who are able to take advantage of this wonderful ministry that these different organizations like MediShare, Samaritan, and the rest, they're all a part of. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Mike. God bless you and your listeners. So we now turn to a guest that is here in the studio for the balance of this segment and on into segment three. Happy to have Judine Parks here. I met this young lady at a recent Christian Chamber meeting uh, and introduced by none other than Mark Goldstein. He brings a lot of uh, people to our, our counter, <laughs> our radio studio, and Judine is one of those. Judine Parks is a native from Jamaica. She's been a believer for about 37 years and has been in the United States for about 26 years. She's a student at Rollins, and it is uh, great to have you with us. Judine Parks, welcome. 
Thank you so much, Mark. You know, when uh, Mark introduced me to you, uh, it was in a particular context. He said, I want you to meet someone who I think is one of the most active volunteers that I know. And so that that caught my ear, and I thought, that's really cool. Uh, what is it about you, Judine, that, what, how do you think he caught that about you? Well, first off, you know, Mark is a, a humble servant of God, and I met him through the Christian Chamber years ago. And I like to serve. When we read the Bible, you know, it talks a lot about servant leadership and Jesus being our example and role model. And so everywhere that I can serve, I make sure that I do so. But I'll give you a little background about that. In 1995, um, a year after I left high school in Jamaica, I was coming from a choir rehearsal in Jamaica and I heard the audible voice of God said to me, counseling social volunteer work. I was so scared because the area that my church was in in Jamaica was a remote area. So I kept on looking behind me to see who was speaking to me. Sure enough, I realized by the time I look around and didn't see anybody, it was the voice of God. And so that was in November of 1995. In 1996, my mom told me and my sisters, well, actually It was me and my younger sister who was going to come with her to the United States. And she said, dad is sick and you guys have to come with me. So I was like, I'm not really ready to go to America yet. (laughs) And sure enough, came here in July of 1996, had to figure out, I mean, what the Lord was saying to me through that statement, because it's just a one sentence with three words in it. And so over the years that I've been here, I immediately, as I came, like a week after I came, I started to volunteer. So I started volunteering in the United States in July, actually two weeks. Yeah, like I said, a week or two after I came here, I started to volunteer. Where did you offer to volunteer? Well, to serve. In one of the branches of the church that I currently attend, there was um, a program at the time, prison fellowship ministries. Mm -hmm. And so I got involved with them. And then after that, I started to volunteer with Campus Crusade for Christ. Oh, crew. I love them. Yes. That's wonderful. So I did one year with them. I think I may have done like four or five years with prison fellowship. Now, would that be the Chuck Colson Prison Fellowship? That would be the Chuck Colson Prison Fellowship. Okay, sure. Another great organization. Yes, and I, after years of being with them, I became an in-prison instructor. Hmm. So. Now, obviously, you came over here. The church meant a lot to you already when you came to America for the first time back in the mid-90s. How did you come to know the Lord to begin with? I was just telling my mom about that last night. I was reminding her. It so happened that one Sunday morning in 1985, November. We were in the house, you know, children playing, getting ready for church and everything. And, and this is back in Jamaica. This is back in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And my mother was watching the television as we prepared ourselves, and Evangelist Jimmy Swaggart was on at the time. 
And my mom came and she held on to my forearm firmly and she said, come and sit here. And yeah, there was I, not going to be any uh, discussion about it. Sounds like huh? <laughs> certainly not. And I got scared because I was wondering what did I do? You know, if she was going to whip me or something, but she never did. She said, sit here. Mm-hmm. And I sat and I listened to evangelist Jimmy Swagger preach the word of God. And he draw for one scripture, Acts chapter one, verse eight. Mm. And as I listened to him, Repeat that scripture, and I tell you, you know, Acts 1 verse 8 said, And he shall receive power. After the Holy Spirit. After that, the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. I just felt tears started to roll down my face. Oh man, what a great story. My guest, Judine Parks, will be back with me in a moment. This is Afternoons with Mike, and you're on The Shepherd. So you weren't really a believer at all. Now, you, you'd probably heard about God. You probably maybe even heard about the gospel, right? Yes, I grew up in a Christian home, so my parents were Christian at the time. And I was only, I don't want to give away my age, but I was only nine years old. Yeah, but it became very personal that day. Yes, it did. And those tears, I mean, that can't be um, that Made can't up. be ignored. Those are those are very strong telltale signs that something big is happening. Amen. Yes, they were, and I got saved that November morning in nineteen eighty-five. You know, I wonder how many times stories like that have um, been happening. And you know, a guy like Swaggart, he's had his issues, mm-hmm. his ups and downs. At one point, I was privileged to be up in Indiana. I was the uh, youth director for one of his big campaigns up there. Okay, for awesome. One of his big meetings. So I, uh, I got to be on stage with him and uh, worked with John Starnes back oh, yes, in the I, day. Yes, you I remember, remember him? John Starnes. Yeah, the singer, pilot who was a singer. And he was uh, Swigert's pilot as well as being his soloist. But oh, I didn't know he was his pilot. No, he, he was heard, his pilot. I yeah. learned something today. And I got to know John and really enjoyed him. I just wonder how many times, you know, stories like that, you hear people all the time talk about Billy Graham and and other evangelists that are either on television or these big crusades like what Swigert did. But it would be a very interesting number, wouldn't it, to hear how many people came to the Lord. Yes, it would be very surprising to many. (laughs) in, In the same way that you did. But it, it not only happened at age nine, but it clearly stuck. This was the real deal that happened in yes, your heart. Yes, God grabbed a hold of me then, and he has not let go to this very day. <laughs> that's, I, that's so beautiful. I love it, and I'm grateful for that. And, you know, he put in you this heart to serve and to look. That's what a volunteer does, really. A volunteer looks for where they can serve and, and how they can serve. Uh, and usually for a motive that is not selfish in any way at all. It's not just something that they like, but it's something that they feel is important. Would that pretty much be accurate for you? Yes, it sure is, because I just wanted to advance the kingdom of God. That's always been my motto. Anywhere there is a need, because Jesus served the people's natural need first, then he took care of their spiritual need. So when you think back now at age nine, when all this was 
deeply implanted in you from God and you had this experience, uh, how did that change your young life from there? Well, I I didn't know that I had volunteering on my mind then. <laughs> <laughs> but looking back now, I realized that, you know, even recently I was thinking that Years later, the Lord gave me Jeremiah 1, verse 4 and 5. But then I kept on thinking, wait a minute. He brought back to me this scripture in Acts about being called to serve. Because going out and fulfilling the gospel, the Great Commission, we are serving. Whether it is in the marketplace or in the church, but we're serving. Right. We're all called to serve. Yes. Yeah, I think of Dylan's song years ago, Bob Dylan, when when he professed Christianity, he, he talked about you got to serve somebody. Everybody's going to serve something. Exactly. We all have to serve something. We all will serve something. The question is, are we going to serve God? Exactly. And see, a lot of people make God a second choice instead of a first choice. Mm. But see, you can serve God and go wrong. Because you can all give God, as R. W. Schombach says. Yeah, I, I, I know that name too. That's something. Yeah, you can't outgive God. That's right. If you've just tuned in, my guest today is Judine Parks uh, from Jamaica. I love your accent, by the way. I think that's marvelous. You've been here all this time and kept it. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. And I appreciate you saying that because some people who have heard it, they don't think that... It's a good thing to have my accent all this time. Oh, I think it's great. You know, my my wife had a, a southern accent, and I'm afraid that I, along with uh, some of my other friends, were probably a little too brutal on her uh, in a, um, well, I, I would say, she would say a mocking way. And uh, that ended up uh, forcing her out of some of those, what I now miss, those delightful uh, southern accent that comes through. Uh, no, I still love her voice. Don't get me wrong. No, I know. But uh, I think it's great, and it is wonderful. Uh, having this heritage that you have, it's really great. America is a wonderful melting pot of uh, different cultures coming together like this. So grateful that you came and you found a life here and with your family, and they're doing well. You mentioned your dad was ill, but he's still alive, right? Yes, he is alive. So that's good as well. And you guys, did you settle in the Orlando area right up front? Yes, because he came to Orlando, so that's where we ended up settling. Mm-hmm. And you said he, over here, was a landscaper. This is the right state to be a landscaper because you can work <laughs> around the year. Definitely so. Yeah, that's really great. Uh, when you look back, what do you miss about Jamaica from that you remember at age nine? Well, the culture, growing up there and just being able to like be playful as a child. You, We didn't have a lot of electronics. We didn't have all that stuff. So we were always in the yard playing. And I used to play a lot with my Barbie dolls. Okay. Now, and something got born when I was age six years old. I didn't realize that until I was in my 20s, though. <laughs> <laughs> my goodness, that is, that's great. Jamaica is such a beautiful island. I've, only, I've been there, but only watched it from the ship. We were on a cruise one time, and we didn't, we didn't make an embark tripping, a trip into the island that day. 
but it is gorgeous. The water is beautiful. The people are so wonderful. I had a chance to work along with some Jamaicans in uh, the Bahamas Mm -hmm. when I was doing a mission trip there one time. And uh, it gave me a real love for the people of your island and where you're from, your nation. That's just great. You know, Judine, now that you're here, you mentioned serving in the prison ministry and then uh, later moving on into crew. Where are you finding your time being spent right now? Um, Right now, my time is being spent in church. But recently, I have, I guess I cut off most of the um, the nonprofits that kind of came to a halt in 2018. Mm-hmm. So serving in the church with the ministries of that church? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm actually the community outreach director in the church. Now, you mentioned to me before we began this segment that you're involved in ministry. You you said specifically that you preach. Where, where do you preach and how does that happen? Well, I... I'm a member of Southside in Winter Garden. That's um, a church for, um, that's affiliated with the Church of God of Prophecy. And I do preach there probably once a month. And I also preach at the Berean Church of God International. Okay. So when you say preach, you're talking about speaking from the pulpit on a Sunday? Yes. Sir. Okay. So you're involved in that. And what, uh, what about that do you love? Well, you know, we can run from God, but we can't hide. And I have tried my best to stay away from ministry for many years. And I remember in 2003, around March or April, the Lord said to me, get used to being a preacher. Well, I sure thank you for being here with us today. Mm, I really enjoyed getting to meet you and to hear your heart of serving and Continue to do things, that, and wherever you are, you know, you tend to want to look uh, at I know the that you're going to be out there embrace the uh, trying to make somebody's and life so a little bit better there were a lot of as you have done that, so you know, far. You see their lives and I their wish life, you the best nah, with your studies me. in college. But thank you I so knew much. I that's when I got that. saved. That's got to be a big deal to be looking at the future there in international business. We wish you the best for that. Judine Parks, my guest. Thank and you once again, I Shadeen. had to do you, and fulfill the call of God on my life. So this was 2003. By 2014, I was ordained. Okay. In the Church of God of Prophecy. Well, at the time, it wasn't the Church of God of Prophecy that I had got ordained with. But now I am being ordained with the Church of God of Prophecy okay. as well. All right. Wonderful. And what do you do now uh, for I, I, just your living? What do, you, what do you find your days being full of? Well, currently, I'm not employed and I'm looking for a job. So anyone listening to this? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. But I do, I do a lot of projects on the side. Okay. So I do that when I'm not in school. And you're studying, again, we talked about you being at Rollins, international business. Yes. Do you have a heart? With that major being what it is, to one day uh, travel to and maybe back to Jamaica, is that possible? Well, Jamaica is possible, but internationally, yes, and globally. Mm-hmm. So you want to be one that travels and involved in business in that way. Now, you also mentioned being a marketplace minister, and that's something that I know is on the heart of Mark Goldstein big time. He wrote a book about it. 
And that is also the heart of Crystal Parker from the Christian Chamber. Being involved on the business scene or in the business scene with your faith, that's something that you really have a heart for. Yes. I know that, you know, when you look at the the teachings of the Bible, especially the apostolic doctrine, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And the king owned everything. Now, the priest, they make intercession. The prophet listens to God and get things in order. So when we, even for my, let me speak about myself. So I know that being a marketplace minister, you know, the reaching the nations with the word of God, as the Bible says, you know, Etnos, the people group, the word in Matthew 8, 28 there. We have to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And there the Bible talk about business. And Jesus said, occupy, do business until I come. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I know that I've been called because from age six, I realized that I was an entrepreneur. I realized it in my 20s, but at age six, I didn't realize that. But playing with my Barbie dolls, I owned every real estate and I owned every business and every property at that time. And I held all the money and I had a bunch of keys. So I had the keys to the city everywhere I went playing dollhouse. Uh -huh. Didn't realize that I wasn't just <laughs> playing with my dolls and making noise. I realized after the fact that this was where God called me to be an entrepreneur. Judine, I know that you're at Rollins and doing the studies for international business. What's 2022 hold for you? Well, I have plans and I am making preparations to register my business. So I do want to start and operate business, putting what I do on the side into a business. Well, talk, talk about that. What is it on the side that you do? I have done a lot and I am still doing a lot on the side. Well, I do event planning. Um, I do document preparation. I do copywriting for gospel artists. I also, with the document preparation services, I've helped to start about three or four churches already. You're busy. <laughs> that's, the, that's just tapping the surface. Oh my goodness. It's really great to talk to someone who has a heart to serve. Because again, we read in the word that the servant is the greatest of all. Correct. And it's not like we're wanting to be great and that's our motivation for serving. Not at all. Mm -hmm. But the person who puts others' needs ahead of their own and goes out and tries to make those around them, their lives better. And, and that's what I see you doing. And that's a wonderful thing. It is. Thank you. Um, you know, I'm passionate about three things in life. Education, humanitarianism, and mental health. And I hate to see people suffer. I like it when there is that spark in the eye. And, mm -hmm. you know, I would prefer to give a hand up than a handout. And that is why I serve, because Jesus had compassion and he has given me a heart of compassion. And so wherever I can make a difference, I always want to make a difference. That's wonderful. Thank you, Judine, for being with me today. Judine Parks, also Katie Talento earlier. We'll see you next time right here on Afternoons with Mike. <music> 